Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and on our panel today, we're joined by Josh Adams. Yo. Eric Ostrich. Hello. And Michael Reese. Hi, Elixir friends. And today we're just getting together, and as we, as I've mentioned before, when we get on the podcast, we just share interesting things that we're discovering and talking about and just like, hey, what do you think about this? And this was, and so we're having such an interesting conversation. We're like, you know, let's just, let's just record this because this is, this is cool. And I'm just, I love hearing other people's perspectives and just kind of being challenged on my own beliefs that I really haven't had a chance, haven't ever been challenged on and forced to kind of really think about. So uh, one of the things we were talking about is this idea of a mono repo. And Josh, can you kind of give us a background on what a mono repo is and what people are talking about when they say that? Yeah, so a mono repo would be a situation where you have a single source code repository that has, say, both an API and its client in the same repo, or maybe multiple projects that work together, but are sort of distinct and deployed separately into, into different runtimes, I think, is my core off-the-cuff definition. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So it's like the idea that I might have a, a, a JavaScript front end, like it's maybe React uh, or a Vue.js or something like that. And I have my back end and I put them all into a same GitHub repo. Yes. Okay. So, and so I know that there are some interesting ideas around that. Like there's pros and cons. It's like, what do you guys see as uh, some of the pros or cons and how that, how that plays out in different team dynamics? So I am... I guess the most boringly opinionated on this topic. So, uh, as, as identified earlier, so, um, I have experienced benefits with both. And my thesis is that the monorepo is not worth it. Um, we have a project right now that's a monorepo and development was very rapid because the very, we have multiple clients and the API and they all live in the same place and it's GraphQL. And so any developer can pull it down and all the stuff works together. And that's super beneficial. I think that's the core, benefit of the monorepo. The downside is it sort of leaves out the distinct thinking of them as separate applications, which they are, and uh, it lets you not treat older versions of the application nicely because you always have the latest version of the application, but your users don't. And so actually testing the, oh, what happens when somebody's two versions behind and I made this change to the API kind of gets left by the wayside. And it can be like avoided, but I think you just kind of naturally avoid it if they're separate projects and they have each other as sort of, or the, the client has the API as a dependency and it's a very clear sort of thing. I'll jump in. I, um, I, I think I have also seen some pros and cons on this. Um, the times that I really loved having multiple things in the same repo, um, in some cases it was 
uh, not so much client server, but, but kind of like several different services that each got deployed to their own servers. But it was uh, one of those situations where it's kind of like, oh, these two things uh, need to both be deployed together on this. And then, uh, you know, B and C need to be deployed in a different set of servers. And maybe we were sizing servers based on uh, resource usage, kind of background workers versus uh, web nodes. Um, and in those cases, a lot of times there's some shared code that you want to live in both of those two runtimes. And, uh, and, and so the times that it seemed to work well is when a project was very new, a team was very new, there was still a lot of uncertainty about how much was going to be done on this side of the, uh, this side of the servers versus that side of things. And, um, and during those early days, a lot of times you really don't care that much if you're going to deploy code and it's going to interrupt the experience of your users for a couple of minutes. A lot of times that's not a big deal. Um, if you're living in that world, then I think a monorepo a lot of times, it makes it really easy to review someone's PR and you see the changes happening both places in the same PR. It, it can make the understandability of a change higher, in my opinion. But there is a lot of times in projects that I work on that it's not okay for me to interrupt everyone's experience uh, for a few minutes whenever I want to make a change because um, I tend to work on teams where we deploy, you know, three to five times a day. When the team gets bigger, maybe we're deploying 10 to 20 times a day. And pretty soon, every one of your users has hit the frustrating case where they're trying to do something and they get interrupted for five minutes. And that's really annoying. And it's uh, a level of quality that is lower than what I want to provide to my paying customers most of the time. So um, as soon as I start to find myself in that place where, where I really care about that level of quality, then I kind of want everyone on the team to think about the fact that you know, maybe some of these ecto schemas are shared between a few projects, pull them into their own thing, probably make it semantically versioned or at least have some sort of like change log or, or some sort of agreed upon contract about um, what changes are going into this thing and how will that affect the consumers of that thing. And especially anything that is its own runtime should really be its own repo um, so that you can have deployment and things like that set up and it's easy to check out master branch of this project or the last branch of that project and test it against yours very easily and, and kind of know what are the points of release of each of these two different things since they will be running separately. Yeah, I feel like that's all right. I also like the fact that it kind of like, if you consider the API and client situation, it forces you to justify the API changes in the context of an API and not, I made some changes and the client works with it now. And like, you can just verify that that's true and now you've reviewed the PR as a, yeah, anyway. One of the big things I caught from both of you is that it's a mental shift. If I have them all in one place, then the developers tend to think more of them as being connected and always in sync, which may not be the case. And so the idea of having them in separate repos, the front end versus the back end, uh, may force them to think about, oh, they are deployed separately, they are versioned separately, and you know what's on the master branch may not be in sync with you know the front and the back end both on their their master branches which you have to think about and then i have to think about stage deploys right so if i'm going to push out a new uh, back end change and that would break something on the front end i have to think about that and maybe uh, the benefit of having them separated is it just kind of forces me to think about that it's the same the same situation exists if they're in the same repo together but i may be less likely to um, to kind of make that planning step. I don't know, what do you guys think? 
Yeah, I, I feel that way. Um, but I also have just just moments ago considered that there's a giant counterexample to, um, you know, my, my feeling is I get better quality from separate repos. But then all of Google's software is in one giant monorepo. And frequently I see people talk about the benefits of being able to change, for instance, an ABI and have it change across all of their software simultaneously with essentially an IDE refactor, which that part sounds compelling for sure. Yeah, I think another great counterexample is basically all of us have, um, well, a lot of people put migrations as a part of their deploy process. And if you have a database deploy migration, then that's going to go out either before or after your code changes, or maybe in the middle of half the code is live, you know, half the servers have the new code and half the servers have the old code, depending on how you organize these things. Um, people have been dealing with that for a long time by you know, the, the things I see people do is they, you know, they come up with team norms like, hey, we always apply database migrations before the new code starts to roll out. So if you're dropping a column, make sure you ignore the column and stop using it in one PR and don't drop it until the next one. And so, you know, teams, teams come up with norm, uh, kind of normalized processes for how they handle the fact that their database is a different runtime than the rest of their app. Um, I would also love to talk to people who do things like hot code reloading in production on those kind of long-lived systems because I wonder if this is really different for them. They, they think about rolling out code um, where like half of their modules are up to the new version and half of them are on the old version. And that's even a, like a totally different set of problems to deal with. And, um, and so maybe in those cases, a monorepo is not such a big deal since you, you've kind of already chosen to to like be, to live in that world where that is your deployment story. Um, and, and so I, I, I do wonder a little bit if, um, if we know of anyone who is doing really different kinds of deployments and maybe for them, this distinguishment doesn't really matter so much in the increased readability of, of being able to see the corresponding changes on both sides in the same PR. Maybe that's more important in those cases. So uh, I guess my... One example of a monorepo is the one I work solo on. <laughs> um, so Grapevines, as we already talked about, it's kind of a, a monorepo. There's like four, three different applications and then the front end, um, all in the same repo kind of mushed together. Um, and I will say I originally started breaking them out into separate repositories and like making them different things and, and like whatnot. And the one thing that really annoys that, that annoyed me enough to pull it all back in was the like, I change a version, I bump it. And then every single other project that uses that, then you have a single commit that's like bump that thing. <laughs> um, so that like, that's, uh, I've, we've also done that for some work projects. We had like a, a single, this was a Ruby gem at the time, a single Ruby gem that was like the core thing that talked to like HubSpot and then we each other apps were talking to like different things that were kind of like syncing to HubSpot. And so like, that's how that pulled in. And anytime we bumped that one, then we'd go around and do three separate commits and like test each one separately. Um, and so like, that's on like a super small team. It was like pretty much just me, like probably overkill <laughs> for that. But like, I can definitely see how that's very useful if like someone is just managing that one app and then there's someone on that other app that just has to bump their one, right? So like, I feel like there's like size of team really dictates if a like, or helps to dictate if a monorepo is, is like 
good or bad or or whatever. So I don't know. That's that's my thoughts on that. It's possible that I'm just a giant dweeb, but the part where you described actually being very explicit about the versions that each one used sounded very good to me, and I liked it. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Yeah, so I guess I guess like the the thing is that uh, they're all always going to use the most recent ones. I guess in in like these use cases. I mean, I guess except the like this was pushed to Roku. So like once we push, the slug was built, and it's just going to keep doing whatever it's going to do um, until we actually bump it when we come back like a month later or whatever um, to to work on that that specific project again. But um, at least in terms of like Grapevine, if I like bump the Ecto repos, there's two separate applications that use that, the website and then the socket. And so like <clears throat> if I if I bump the one, I want them both to bump at like the same time <laughs> because they're in a cluster. Uh it's so, like I'm gonna deploy one and the other pretty simultaneous with each other, and like there will be downtime, so like there's that. But this is a small enough project that I, I don't really care. <laughs> but yeah, like being explicit is is good but it's just like a level of tedium i think for like just me i think is this the yeah i i I agree with that entirely it definitely especially on like a hobby project it it that takes time and you want to spend time doing fun stuff on hobby project but uh now that we have dependabot or something that can just send you the pr to bump the version i feel like that uh that pain point is a little less that's true and it is all open source (laughs) Yeah. One area that this makes me think about is something like LiveView, where you are kind of blurring the line between the client and the server. Um, do you, I don't know how to think about that. Do you need to worry about people have already loaded a page, it had that markup, and then when you deploy a change that would have, it would have given them a different initial set of markup when the page first loaded? Like, what happens? Mark, do you, I know you've been doing some LiveView. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's interesting is, and this is, I think is a benefit is when live view, like when you deploy the new code on the server, it is going to kill that WebSocket connection because you're taking down the instance and bringing it up. Now, if you're doing a, like a, a hot code up, hot code reload, that may not be the case. And you'd have to think about it differently, but like with a, a standard kind of deploy, you know, it's going to take it down and bring it back up. And then the client will be temporarily disconnected and then they'll reconnect and you know, make their WebSocket connection. And I believe, I think I've seen some commits recently on Phoenix Live View to help detect that change and force like a, like a, a full page reload or something. I don't know. But uh, I think it'll handle that okay. Like, so it just means that your session information that's stored on the client, that could still be a problem. Like if the session data that they have stored in their browser, that gets kind of written into the page so they can kind of rehydrate their session. If that's changed substantially, like what data you were expecting to be there, that could pose a problem, I, I suppose. I just want to jump in and say that I really hope that they fix the <laughs> my bit. The my one problem with Live View is like people leave love to leave browser tabs open forever, and I've kind of mentioned this before. But like I was getting a slow trickle of errors as like an ancient browser tab with bad state early on in in Phoenix Live View kept connecting and reconnecting, 
And like every minute I got an error because the session couldn't parse from whatever. I just was just on Phoenix live view master. So like something was wrong. I think it's, it's fixed now, but like something was just off enough that it couldn't parse the session. So I just kept retrying at the like super slow rate that like nothing could figure out that there's like an issue that couldn't be fixed. So like just throttle it or whatever. Um, so if they can just make you reload the page, that would be amazing. <laughs> and I hope they do that. Yeah, we, we had the same issue uh, just using a Vue.js front end with WebSocket connection, where people would leave like, exact same situation. People would leave browser tabs open for a long time. They're auto logged out because the data that they're accessing is sensitive. So we have like forced logouts. Uh, but it's sitting there trying to just continually reconnect. And you know, you, you know when it happens because I look at the logs and it's just like error logs, like just boom. And it, but like the goal of mine is to clean that up because it just creates a lot of log noise so that if there is a true error problem, it, you have to like filter out all the other stuff. So it just, it's more of an annoyance. Yeah, I have that exact same thing in, um, I'm sure it's someone probably that I work with that's leaving a tab open forever. And every time I go look at my logs, it's just like, uh, you know, it's just the last 10,000 logs are like one deploy happened and this person tried to reconnect with an unauthenticated session 9,999 times. And uh, that really does feel to me like generally if this was a RESTful app or, or you know, some sort of uh, more traditional request response interaction, I would explicitly handle the case that someone didn't send invalid credentials and that doesn't get logged as an error. It just gets logged as a request that got a 401 response. And it does kind of feel like like I, maybe that's just the way I solve this. Maybe I need to make another socket, uh, like uh, a join function that takes in the old invalid state and responds like, no, you're not allowed to join. And that way this is not like a bad matcher. Yeah, I, I will say um, you can, in the join, you can send back error with like a reason. And if you specifically disconnect the socket, like, Phoenix JS stops trying again. It's just when there's an error trying to connect and gets like a whatever the WebSocket 500 is, uh, <laughs> uh, then it it just keeps trying to reconnect. It is very persistent. So maybe we just need a little, some better kind of boilerplate solutions for this, so that we don't all have to independently figure out how to solve it. <laughs> yeah, honestly, the first uh, three days of any Century account is where I figure out which errors are being spewed. Uh, very, very, very fast, so fast that they used up my entire monthly quota of error reporting in about four seconds. Well, they should have, uh, Sentry has like throttle detection where if it gets over the average per minute of the last like 24 hours, it just starts dropping stuff, so. Yeah, I think it's, I think this was more of a problem back in the day. Oh, gotcha. I fix those things now. Um, I guess this, so I was going to make this my pick, but we're kind of already talking about it, but um, in order to combat this problem, uh, I ended up making a, a version checker for assets. So it's, it's super manual and won't always work, but uh, I, I said it, there's just, a, I don't know, it's like 60 lines of JavaScript that sets a time, like it checks the page to get the current version of assets from an API of just like slash version and it returns like a number. So it's just an integer. And then uh, it says a timeout for 15 minutes. So just every 15 minutes, it's gonna try and check that version number again. And if it's bigger, it's just going to hard, it's going to, it's going to pop up a little warning in like the alert section that's like, Hey, your assets are out of date. Uh, this is going to refresh in a minute, like, or click now. And then after that minute, 
is up. It just hard reloads the whole page. <laughs> uh, and then that's, that's my like escape hatch to just like, I'm done with your errors in ancient tabs. <laughs> yeah, that's actually just the right fix, I think. And, and that idea was uh, totally stolen um, from one of our, I don't know, I think debriefs of a podcast. Josh had talked about it and uh, went, yeah, went ahead and, and stole the idea and implemented it myself. Yeah, it's Josh-driven development. So have you guys ever experienced the idea of like, some, like what we've been talking about is a lot of like uh, front-end JavaScript. That's uh, a very common uh, client for what we're talking about typically with web applications. Uh, but I know there's like, you know, mobile applications where you have Dart, Flutter, you know, iPhone, you know, I'm targeting other kinds of clients. Have you guys ever tried putting anything like that into a mono repo? And what kind of experience was that like? Yeah, that's actually what I do on one of the projects we work on. And it was my most recent foray into mono repos, primarily just so we could move faster early. And I really have enjoyed it for the most part, but honestly, it makes like CI is harder. Everything I do is not what any tool expects out of the box. So there is no convention over configuration, which isn't a giant deal. But as I mentioned, it's my first mono repo in a long time. So every single one of those I had to sort of solve on my own. Um, and then I actually would really like to play with Jenkins X, which is this uh, continuous integration and continuous delivery pipeline that's Kubernetes native. But uh, it absolutely requires that you use monorepos. So that's, uh, sorry, that you do not use monorepos. So that's honestly, that's my current biggest beef is there's a toy and I want to play with it and I can't play with it because of the decisions that I made. But other than that, yeah, it worked really good for fast prototyping with multiple clients. Nice. Back when we were starting up new shows, one of the shows that got started was Views on View. And one of the things that was really fun about that is that I got to know a bunch of really terrific people in the view community. And furthermore, one thing that happened that really hadn't happened on any of the other shows, we actually got a member of the core team to come on as a regular panelist on the show. We have Chris Fritz on there. The other thing is, is you may recognize some of the other voices. Ben Hong, who's on the official View News podcast, is also a panelist on the show. He's worked for Politico and now works for GitLab. We also have a bunch of other terrific panelists that come on and talk to you about what's going on in the Vue community. And because they're so closely tied to Vue and they talk to people about Vue all the time, they're very up-to-date and very knowledgeable about what's going on in the Vue community. So if you're looking for a way to learn Vue.js or if you're looking for a way to stay current with Vue.js and kind of have the water cooler conversations you wish you could have about it in places where maybe they're not using it, then definitely check it out. You can find it at viewsonview.com. So one of the things I just want to mention, uh, kind of the way I think of umbrella projects. So I know a lot of people have different kind of opinions about what makes an app in an umbrella project. Because you like when you create an umbrella project, you have an apps folder, and that's where you create like other mixed new projects inside of those. They can be uh, standard mix projects. Uh, they can be uh, Phoenix projects. You know, you can have a, a whole different set of things. And I like to the way I uh, the way I think about my uh, the different apps I have in my umbrella project is I think, how would I do this if it were a uh, microservice? Um, not exclusively, but for most of the pieces I put in there, I'd say there, this is a microservice. I even, it would even make sense for me to deploy this independently, which you can do with an umbrella project. Uh, so I, in a way, I kind of think of an umbrella as a monorepo with how you might think of organizing mo uh, like microservices. Because, but the benefit that I like is it lets me uh, keep them all versioned together. They're easier to deploy together. And when I'm you know, in an early stage of 
production usage, which I may never actually grow out of, you know, they're all deployed on one machine anyway. You know, at some point I might say, oh yeah, we're going to, you know, create uh, three different dedicated machines for these particular apps and I could deploy those individually. But uh, I don't know, that's, I just want to mention that as an idea. I know that's not typically what we're talking about when we say monorepo, but I like that as a strategy for how I'm able to join projects uh, together to uh, make it so the developer experience is a lot more uh, fluid and enjoyable. Just that I'm able to, you know, the alternative is I was talking with a friend. He works at uh, a well-known kind of elixir shop locally and they have dozens of uh, different microservices, true actual microservices. And so I was talking with him about, yeah, you know, the struggle that he has with the development environment. And yeah, you, you can solve that with Docker Compose. So you can put them all and load them all up into separate little Docker files and use Docker Compose to kind of bring everything all up. Uh, and that makes sense when you, when you need to, because maybe these different services are written, maybe one's in Go and one's in Python and one's in Ruby. And, and, and that's kind of what you have to do. Uh, but you know, if, if Umbrella Projects, I feel like gives a much better experience for being able to keep everything all together. I don't know. Have you guys ever tried using Umbrella Projects that way? I haven't really. I know Eric sort of sort of does on Grapevine, right, with the, uh, what is the Telnet piece? Yeah, um, it's my new term, the Ponchbrella, as we talked about, <laughs> uh, where it is and is not an Umbrella app. I, mean, I feel like, I feel like uh, my personal take on an Umbrella app is sort of like the, I don't know, like at the beginning, you want to do a monorepo and not do an umbrella app. Um, just for my one experience of doing it for like real, uh, we, we went for the monor we went for the umbrella app way too soon. And so I think like now with grapevine, it's, it's big enough where like splitting it up into chunks makes sense. So I feel like that's kind of how you want to do it. So you like, you start with a mono everything, and then it gets big enough and grows big enough. And then you have a bunch of people on the team or whatever that you can then start chunking it up and then and doing the microservice thing. So I think, I think yeah, that's, that's like waiting to do the, the Umbrella app is, is my personal take on it. I had nice, to Go ahead, Josh. I was just going to say the nice thing about um, the Elixir runtime and deployment thing is even if you are running them on different nodes, as long as you mesh them, you kind of don't have to change any of the code. So that's super nice. Anyway, so I feel like that changes the decisions a little bit if you're staying inside of like a meshed uh, Elixir VM. Yeah, I had one deployed Umbrella project once um, and the trade-off that I found myself thinking about was if we, if we keep including stuff internal uh, into the Umbrella, it did make refactorings much easier because this thing will start as a unit and, and like come up, come up as a unit, go down as a unit. Um, so you can make big refactorings fairly easily, which was really nice for being able to clean up code and keep things tidy. Um, the downside was that if I wanted to upgrade a dependency like Phoenix, then I kind of had to make sure that everything in there was okay with that new version. And um, in this one project, there was a few dependencies that quite a few of the pieces all depended on and upgrading those became a little bit painful just because they, they turned into fairly large PRs. So, um, that's the only, you know, if, if you need to upgrade your Elixir version or a dependency, which is kind of used by everything in the, in the umbrella, that's really the only time that I've seen that um, become painful, other than the case that your team grows very large and sometimes you're all stepping on each other's toes. And it's, it's actually nice to say, this group of people is going to provide this contract over here. And 
with its complete own Elixir versions and deployment story and everything, then sometimes splitting it out is just a matter of um, making it fit the human team. True. A lot of the decisions that I think, you know, what's appropriate changes based on uh, the team. Like if I'm doing it myself, I can make a lot of affordances and just, you know, whatever is most convenient for me as my team grows, it might be appropriate to change my strategy. So I think that's, that's cool. So thank you guys for this fun discussion. Uh, I think we'll wrap it up there. Uh, why don't we go to picks? Eric, did you want to just kind of reiterate what you had already picked? Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna repick the thing I already talked about. Um, I have a link to the commit. It's all self-contained, um, so you can go ahead and see what I did, and maybe you can do it better and uh, let me know. Cool, Michael. Uh, just one pick this uh, for this episode. I'm uh, just gonna pick the MPEX LA conference. I went last year to it. I'm gonna be going again this year and speaking a little bit about nerves. Um, and it looks like a pretty interesting group of presenters. Last last year when I went. It was a great kind of a, a cozy conference. It was, it was one where you got to meet pretty much everyone that was there. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing some people again that I haven't seen since last year. So I uh, just wanted to pick uh, MPEX LA. Sweet. Hey, Josh, how about you? Yeah, I have, I have a pick. It's not one that I've vetted or anything, but uh, it is one that I'm going to play with. And it's just a library called Akismetx, which is an API client for the Akismet anti-spam service. We were talking about moderation earlier, and uh, this is on my radar with regard to moderation. Cool. All right. And the one I was going to pick is uh, I recently wrote an article, and uh, it's, it's like if you've been trying to use Elixir LS, which is an extension in VS Code, and you're trying to use VS Code for Elixir development, and you're having a bad time, it's not working for you, you're like, oh, I had to uninstall the extension, then that's what this article is for. It is to help you diagnose problems and describe several common issues and how to fix them. So it's just basically for people wanting to do Elixir development in VS Code. So you can check that out. And I had one other one. This is just a fun one. I saw this this morning. So there is a so if if you've been hearing about like Disney Plus has the uh, Star Wars show, The Mandalorian, the technology that they're using to create the show is kind of very futuristic in itself. And there's a demo of what they're using and, or something very much like it. Uh, and there's a, I'm gonna drop a link to that video in the show notes. It is a YouTube video. What they're using is, uh, dem they're, it's the Unreal Engine uh, with filmmaking with really large LCD panels uh, creating the environment with the actor in front of it. So typically you have like an actor standing in front of green screens and they have to kind of imagine what things are going to look like to kind of put themselves mentally into that place so they can have a, a, a realistic acting experience. And what this is doing, it's helping the actors kind of get into the presence and location. And it's also helping the uh, videographers and the directors to kind of really visualize it all as, as it's happening instead of like having to wait for like a couple months before they can see renderings of what everything looks like together. So it's a super cool tech. Uh, it's just the idea as like that these 3D environments are created and as they move the camera around, the camera position is tracked. So as they move it around, it'll change the perspective on the panels behind the actor so that they feel like they are genuinely in this environment and, it, and like it, everything responds in a 3D way, in a very realistic way. So check that out, it's super cool. That has to save a ton of money on post-production. Yeah, and if nothing else, it, like it gives people a better, uh, you know, a yeah, a faster time to completion. A feedback loop also. Yeah. 
So I had fun talking with all you guys. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you online, where should they go to do that? I'm on Twitter at K-N-E-W-T-E-R. And yes, I have to say that a lot and I hate it. Uh, I'm at uh, Eric Ostrich on Twitter. I'm at MMM Reese and also regret my early decisions on the username. <laughs> <laughs> and I am at BrainLid. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.